Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to a brand new Empire podcast format. To tie in with our Empire 30, hashtag Empire 30 birthday celebrations, we will be bringing you across the year a series of podcast documentaries, or if you will, podumentaries about key films in the careers of some of our Empire 30, sorry, hashtag Empire 30 filmmakers. And frankly, there's no better way to kick things off than with this look back at the biggest movie of all time, Avatar, featuring the man who made it, writer-director James Cameron. Now, what you're about to hear has been drawn together from a series of interviews Empire conducted with Cameron over the years. Shortly before the film's release in 2009, Len on the phone in 2010, following its incredibly successful launch, and most recently, in a hotel room in London, where I sat down and had a good old natter to him about all things Pandora. So, there might be some variation in sound quality. The archive interviews were not recorded for a podcast, of course, but we feel what Cameron said in them was too good to leave out here. We hope you enjoy. In the end, James Cameron's future came down to the toss of a coin. A metaphorical coin, granted, not the kind you'd have any joy with down the shops, but a coin nonetheless. It was 2005. Eight years had elapsed since Titanic had made the Canadian director the king of the world, bagging 11 Oscars and $1.8 billion worldwide, making it the biggest movie of all time. And since then, Cameron had largely swapped the director's chair for, amongst other things, a cramped seat in a bathysphere. He had called the shots in a couple of documentaries that showcased his new passion for deep-sea diving, but not so much in the way of actual movies. However, he had been beavering away on two major projects, and now the time had come to choose. Heads was a manga adaptation called Battle Angel. Tails, a little sci-fi movie by the name of Avatar. Cameron had been developing both projects for a while, anxious to explore the next frontier of visual effects with his company, Digital Domain. We had done humanoid, we'd done liquid characters on the Abyss and T2. Stan had worked with ILM on dinosaurs, so now you had organic uh, muscle and bone kind of, kind of things. The next big thing seemed like we need to do a human or we need to do a humanoid character. We need to crack that, you know, facial animation. So photo real, mm. but now uh, human performance driven. And so I went off uh, as as CEO and, and co-founder of Digital Domain, which is still a major effects house now, 25 years later. I went off to create something that would be the grand provocation that would drive our CG artists to the next next level. Cameron's two projects ticked those boxes. Battle Angel had as its lead an entirely CG character. Avatar, meanwhile, was roughly 90% CG to be filmed using performance capture techniques, including a camera rig that Cameron had invented and that would be affixed to the head of his actors. Both movies presented the same challenges. So we literally went to 20th Century Fox and said, please give us $10 million and we will develop a system to do this and it will get amortized across these two movies and their sequels if we're successful on, you know, on either one or both of these uh, as franchises. And that seemed to make sense. So we plunged into a big six-month R&D project. In the end, it was the artifice of Avatar that was its saving grace. Cameron and his team wanted to take that $10 million and make a one-minute proof-of-concept showreel, a statement of intent. But we didn't care which movie we did it for, because theoretically what we had created would work equally well. As I looked through the, uh, the Battle Angel script... 
there were no CG only scenes. They were always CG plus human. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, it really needs to be CG only because we don't want to have to go do a live action shoot and drop a character into it. So um, I looked at Avatar, which, of course, had lots of CG only scenes, but I but I didn't have a script. He had a scriptment, one he'd been working on for some considerable time. And in the Cameron style, it was an epic, but no actual script. So over the weekend, Cameron sat down and hammered out a four page scene where his two heroes, Jake Sully and the Navi warrior Neytiri, met for the first time. Cameron recruited two actors to fill out the performance capture onesies. One of them was Yin Jun Kim, who went on to star in Lost. And immediately the filmmaker took to the process like a duck to the proverbial. In the process of going through the making of the prototype, I kind of fell in love with Avatar and the possibility of bringing it to life because I think I hadn't really thought we were ready to do it and that Alita would make more sense to do first because it didn't seem as as aggressive because you weren't doing, not only were we doing CG characters in Avatar, we were doing CG environments, Mm -hmm. whereas Alita was a CG character in a photoreal environment. But... Yeah, I just fell in love with Avatar and said, we're doing this first. And everybody said, eh, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we thought of them as equally commercial. The rest, as people who say the rest, as they say as history, say, is history. But in case you're not a history buff, a quick recap. When it was released four years later following a long production process and the odd backlash or two, Avatar placed the King of the World crown back on Cameron's head, if it had ever been dislodged in the first place. It became a phenomenon, the kind of cultural event that strikes once in a blue-skinned moon. Not only did it wind up with nine Oscar nominations winning three, but it became the biggest film of all time, blowing past Titanic with $2.7 billion in the bank. Not bad for an idea that Cameron had stuck away in a drawer for the best part of three decades. Well, Avatar didn't just pop into my head. I suppose it did uh, in, in, in the very germination moment. I was about 19 and just happened to have a dream about a bioluminescent forest. Got excited by the images in the dream and uh, woke up and got out my color pastels and started working on black paper and sketching up what I had seen. This was in the early 1970s. Cameron, then in his senior year at high school, was a budding filmmaker, even back then, and already had a keen interest in the environment, particularly all the inventive ways humanity had of ensuring it probably wasn't going to be around very much longer. So in 1971, in my senior year in, in high school in Canada, I made a little short film about the environment. I wrote a play called Extinction Syndrome that we put on, which was just my sort of dark view of where humanity was going with pollution and nuclear war and every other damn thing. It was very sophomoric, but, but, you know, I mean, I don't think I've really changed thematically that much. I still think in very uh, sort of apocalyptic, pessimistic terms, but very positive and optimistic about human nature, human character, human capability on an individual basis. It's at a systems level that we totally fall apart and act like complete monkeys. What would become Avatar burned briefly in Cameron's mind, but he didn't do anything with it. Not right away. His path did take him into movies, working with Roger Corman on the likes of Battle Beyond the Stars and John Carpenter, where he was a matte painter on Escape from New York. At some point in the late 1970s, working on some big space epic idea, Cameron remembered that bioluminescent planet, pulled it out and started to work on the idea. By 1995, by the time he had become one of the biggest directors in Hollywood history, with The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, 
Terminator 2 and True Lies under his belt, he had finally completed that scriptment for Avatar, or Project 880, as it was then known. There are some changes between that scriptment which can be readily found on the internet and what Avatar ended up becoming, but not huge ones. Cameron's idea was this, a sci-fi tale that blended virtually all his key sci-fi influences into one big melting pot. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of very recognizable, I think, archetypes in in the, the story. Anything from those you know, stories of which Dan- Dances with Wolves is one, the story of the, the American frontier and the conflict between Western civilization, technical sort of civilization, and the, and the very uh, close to the balance of nature, indigenous populations, the Native Americans. And that didn't go too well for them, you know. Um, and, of course, that story is replicated throughout history in South America, Africa, where, wherever, uh, India. I think it's got its roots in good old-fashioned kind of adolescent adventure storytelling, you know, or the, the sort of the, you know, Rudyard Kipling man who would be king, uh, you know, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, John Carter of Mars, any time that you have somebody who's a, a representative of another culture, especially a mechanized or military culture dropped into a, a, a completely different culture in an exotic land, and they have to sort of find their place and prevail, find themselves in the process. It's, it's all sort of pretty familiar stuff. It, it, I think from a science fiction standpoint, it's, it's got its roots in really sort of classic uh, uh, science fiction of, the, of the, the 40s and 50s, not the kind of necessarily uh, you know, dystopian science fiction of, yeah. the, of the, the 60s, 70s. Uh, but that's okay. That was, that was by design. That story then, in a Navi nutshell. Many years in the future, Earth is exploring the stars, or ravaging them, depending on your point of view. One such lucky planet is Pandora, with its dizzying array of deadly wildlife, flora, fauna, and giant blue cat-like natives called the Navi. In order to fully move around in the planet's otherwise toxic atmosphere, humans download their consciousnesses into cloned Navi bodies, known as avatars. It's in one of these bodies that embittered paraplegic Jake Sully finds himself trapped one night when he's left behind. A Navi warrior called Natiri saves his life, the two fall in love, and the course is set for action that will change Pandora and Jake Sully forever. And if that's it in a nutshell, you can see why the movie's nearly three hours long. Cameron was deep in Titanic at the time he completed the Project 880 scriptment, but he also knew deep down that the standard of visual effects wasn't quite where he wanted it to be. He was prepared to wait. And then he popped along to the cinema and Avatar popped back onto his to-do list. I had just seen the second Lord of the Rings film and I thought of Gollum and I thought of his emotional affect and, and how and the work that Andy Serkis had done and the work that Weta had done. And I thought, if Peter Jackson can do that with that team, then I think it's time to revisit Avatar. Fox, the studio he had worked with before on Aliens, The Abyss and Titanic, were his first choice. But even Cameron, the great and powerful, sometimes struggled to make the bean counters get on board with his vision. And that vision was of a completely immersive 3D experience, one that would make the viewer, in an ideal world, feel like they were on an ideal world. What I had pitched to the studio, and I think they only half heard it, uh, I'm sorry to say, was the goal of this production is to create an experience that's like dreaming with your eyes open. I want people to feel like they're asleep and they've gone somewhere in their mind 
and they don't want to wake up. And I think we accomplished that. And it was a goal. It was a very specific goal. And I remember I had, I had big fights with, with uh, the powers that be at Fox at the time about the amount of flying in the movie. I said, people can only fly in their dreams. I said, it will be dreamlike. It's a dreamlike experience, but it's one that seems real and present and happening and wrapping around you. And they said, yeah, but we don't need it. We've, we've got a flying bit here, and so now you don't need it. And you get on with the story. I said, it's not about the story. It's about the experience. You know, it's about being in that moment and not wanting to leave that moment. And I think now that I've heard myself say it out loud, I think I should go make them twice as long. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) Just leave it the way it is. I said, oh, good. Good idea. Avatar wasn't the first film to shoot on a volume, a performance capture stage where the actors have the freedom to do what they want. And the director has an equal amount of freedom of choice. Robert Zemeckis, an equal proponent of the medium, had made both the Polar Express and Beowulf before Avatar started shooting. But Cameron was confident that he could, with Avatar, address the problems that had dogged those movies. Namely, the eyes. The cold, dead, lifeless eyes. You've got to believe the character exists and is real and and is a person. Even if she's nine feet tall and blue with cat ears. It's all in the eyes as well. It's all in the eyes. It's all in the eyes. Cameron famously is the kind of guy who can do pretty much everyone's job in a movie set to a high standard. Editing, DP, catering... You name it, he can handle it. And he is a smart cookie, a restless intellect that invents new tech for fun. And as he explained to Empire's James Dyer back in 2009, that's just what he did with Avatar, creating new pieces of technology that allowed them to make performance capture even smoother. The first one is the head rig and, and, and everything associated with the, the image-based facial capture. And the other thing is the, the, the virtual camera, the real-time the virtual camera. The game changer, though, was something called the Live Action Stereoscopic Camera System, which... ...allowed us to, to put um, characters and environments into live shots in real time, which was, I think, a huge, a huge breakthrough. It, it created a, you know, quite a fluidity to the way stuff was shot. What that meant is that Cameron was able to point his camera at, say, an actor on set in all their ping-pong ball glory, but he would see, on the monitor, a rudimentary version of what that actor would look like as a CG character, complete with equally rudimentary backgrounds. So now Cameron was about to venture forth into the uncanny valley with nothing but several hundred million dollars, talent and technical know-how up the wazoo, and the confidence of a man who had spent a decade and more telling Arnold Schwarzenegger what to do. Yes, Cameron was a pioneer of digital effects, but he was also a man who had worked doggedly in the practical realm. Aliens is a triumph of models and matte paintings, while he built the Titanic for pity's sake. Still, going completely digital seemed like something of a sea change, but he admits that he was excited by the possibilities, by the infinity of choices that the new format would afford him. It forces you to be very, very disciplined and to really hone your, your sense of cinema. You know, why does the camera go here? And why am I on this shot? I can be on any shot I want. You know, even when I'm cutting the scene, I can always go back and, and do another camera angle if I want to, and sometimes I do. You know, an infinity of choices is not necessarily a blessing. Getting the the perfect shot and the perfect performance in the sa- at the same time on the same piece of media is it's beyond our capacity. I mean, it's really almost impossible. But when you do it, of course, it's 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 fantastic. But with performance capture, you just need to get the performance, and that's a little bit intoxicating. The actors love it because they're never going to look bad or never have a lesser a lesser take where they were off just that little bit. Uh, because it was in focus or because the lighting was better. 
Those actors include the likes of Giovanni Ribisi, Michelle Rodriguez, Wes Studi, Stephen Lang as the formidable bad guy Colonel Quaritch, and Cameron's old alien star Sigourney Weaver as Dr. Grace Augustine, who was initially called Dr. Grace Shipley, until both Cameron and Weaver realised that Shipley was a little too close to Ripley. All were recognisable actors, but for Neytiri and Jake Sully, his two star-crossed lovers, Cameron wanted to cast fresh faces. With the help of his long-term casting director Mali Finn, who passed away during production, and Marjorie Simpkin, he first found Zoe Saldana, who had shone brightly in the likes of Spielberg's The Terminal and the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Zoe was the first one cast, and, you know, there's something kind of mysterious about casting. You kind of don't know it till you see it. And I think the more you over-describe the character or, or, or look for a specific type of person, a specific ethnicity or a specific background, the more you limit, you got to keep your mind open. I saw her in a first round that Mally had done, and then Mally had to leave the project, and Margie Simpkin took over. And we brought uh, Zoe in under, under Margie for me to meet and work with, and she was fantastic. I mean, I, I looked at some others, but... Zoe was, it was immediate. It wasn't so easy with Jake. For Jake, Cameron found himself with a short list of three young male actors. I screen test the hell out of these guys. I shot them in, in 3D with full up lighting. I shot them the way I was going to shoot the movie. Even if you have spent most of the past decade searching for unobtainium, you'll probably know that Australian actor Sam Worthington bagged the role in the end. But you may not know the identity of his two immediate rivals. That was Chris Evans and uh, Sam and Channing Tatum. And that was my choice. And I couldn't have gone wrong, really, in, in that choice. While it's tempting to imagine a sliding doors universe where Evans is cast as Jake, Tatum becomes Captain America, and Worthington ends up in the Jump Street movies, it worked out well for all three parties in the end. And Cameron is in no doubt that he made the right choice. I really like Channing's appeal. I liked Chris's appeal. You know, they were, they were both great, great guys. But Sam had a quality of voice and a quality of, of intensity. Everybody did about the same on, the, on all the material through the script except the final speech when he stands up and says, this is our land, ride now, go as fast as the wind will carry you, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I would have followed him into battle and I wouldn't have followed the other guys. Now, they've since gone on to, to fantastic careers and, and, and all that, but, but Sam was just ready. He was ready. As the man who once apparently said, less isn't more, more is more, Cameron has never been backwards in coming forwards. Yet even he admits to doubts during the long production process on Avatar. Let's put it this way. Filming began on Avatar in April of 2007 and went on until December of that year. The movie was initially due out in May 2009, but was pushed back until December of that year to allow for more time in post. That was nothing new to Cameron. Titanic had experienced similar delays and turned out all right. And on the surface, all seemed calm, serene. Cameron was outwardly bullish about the film's prospects. But underneath, even he was paddling furiously. To put it in perspective, we were three years into a four and a half year project before we saw one completed shot that gave us confidence that any of it would work. That shot was a tight close-up of Saldana's Neytiri early on in the film. In fact, it's the first time we see her character. Soon after that, Cameron received the other five or six shots in that brief sequence. When we got that scene finished, there was a moment, and again, it was three years into the process, and I literally just sat in my editing room and put it on loop. 
I watched it over and over and over and said, I, th I think this is going to work. I think this is going to work. But we were three years in. We were three years on $100 million in. So, you know, it was an enormous leap of faith to go down that path. It all seems obvious after the fact, but it doesn't seem obvious when you're doing it. But from that moment on, I knew we were going to be okay. If Cameron experienced other long, dark nights of the soul, you can partially attribute that to the backlash the movie suffered before it even opened. This very magazine had the world's first look at the movie, putting it on the cover of our October 2009 edition. The reaction was mixed. The first teaser debuted to a series of shoulder shrugs. Then the infidious comparisons to Fern Gully and the Smurfs began jokes that still get trotted out today. August 22nd, 2009 was dubbed Avatar Day when Cameron unfailed 16 minutes of footage to sceptical press, who remained largely sceptical. With the release four months away, it seemed like this was it. At long last, James Cameron was about to drop the ball. But as he told me shortly after the movie opened, he wasn't worried about the backlash. Kind of welcomed it in a way because I figured, look at the controversy out of the way early on. You know, I mean, if I hadn't been through the whole Titanic scenario, I mm -hmm. probably would have felt differently about it and been really concerned. But I realized that, you know, there's always a lot of nattering negativity right up until the moment that people actually see the movie, and then the movie gets judged on its merit as as it should be. Avatar opened on December 18, 2009, to an excellent $77 million take. But there was still no indication of what was to come. Gradually, though, just as had happened with Titanic, the movie showed incredible staying power. There were reports online of people going back again and again and again for good measure. Message boards were crammed with commenters wishing that they could move to Pandora. As far as they were concerned, they wanted to vote for a hard pexit. And while the movie was huge in the States, it was the size of home tree in the rest of the world. Within 41 days, it had powered past Titanic's $1.8 billion. By the time it ended its run, it had grossed $2.787 billion. It was the first film to hit the $2 billion mark worldwide, something that has still been achieved by only four films, and nothing has come close in the decades since to matching it. Nothing. Another way to show the enormity of Avatar's box office performance. At that time, if you had added together the box office of the number two and number three films of all time, Titanic and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, they would just about have exceeded Avatar's figure. Just about. It was kind of amazing for all of us that lightning would strike twice and in two such widely diverse subject matters. You know, it felt really satisfying that people were embracing it as an experience. An experience, of course, is exactly what Cameron had designed and delivered. And much of that revolved around his use of 3D. Cameron set out to make 3D this gimmick, this largely forgotten aspect of cinema, an intrinsic part of Avatar's appeal. He wanted to heighten the sense that the viewer was on Pandora with Jake Sully or flying through the air in the back of a great Leonoptrix or playing office golf with Parker Selfridge, as he told me in 2010. The goal was to launch, launch 3D and give it legitimacy as a, as a natural and integral part of cinema, like color, like widescreen, like surround sound and get it out of the ghetto of, of kind of animation and, and schlocky horror films. There's a tremendous groundswell on the part of the directing community right now, at least that, that I'm feeling, that, that there's this, this enthusiasm now for 3D. I think that Avatar, because it's a, it's a, it's a big mainstream tentpole movie by a legitimate filmmaker, now gives them a sense of permission that they can work in 3D. 
Avatar was single-handedly responsible for the boom in 3D movies at the time, which gave the industry a huge bump. That soon wore off, of course, and Avatar was often blamed for the inferior movies that followed in its wake. But it's harsh to blame Cameron just because very few filmmakers understood how to use 3D in the same way he did. It's also an easy stick with which to beat the film's box office performance, with critics citing the inflated ticket prices for 3D showings. Again, though, those ticket price bumps have remained available to filmmakers ever since, and again, nothing has even come close to Avatar's impact. But that impact is interesting. Avatar was huge in 2009 and 2010, but its cultural imprint has perhaps not been as big as you might expect from a film that was once so ubiquitous. A second backlash has propagated and taken hold since its release, when the director announced that he was going to make not one, not two, not three, but four Avatar sequels. It was greeted with the same disdainful eye-rolls from those who doubted him first time around. The received wisdom goes that Cameron has simply waited too long. That by the time Avatar 2 finally arrives in December 2020, 11 years will have passed between movies. That the iron is not just no longer hot, but has gone cold to the touch. That is to overlook the impact that Avatar has had on Cameron himself. He could easily have made Battle Angel in the immediate months or years following Avatar's incredible success, when every studio on the planet was tripping over themselves to write him a huge check. But he hadn't reckoned on one thing. He hadn't reckoned on falling in love with the world he'd created quite so readily. I thought I was going to go straight on to Alita after Avatar. But Avatar became its own journey. It really just took over my life because of the sustainability issues, because of all the, the feedback that we got from the indigenous community and their, uh, their reaching out to me and going to the Amazon and working with indigenous people down there and just kind of, uh, you know, I went down the rabbit hole of, of Avatar and I saw the, the vast potential of making Avatar sequels to actually do something in the world, actually have an effect. Battle Angel, of course, is now in cinemas as Alita Battle Angel with Robert Rodriguez at the helm and Cameron on producing and writing duties. I never fell out of love with the project. I just assumed I would do it later. And then Robert came along. But Cameron was never realistically going to find the time to direct that movie because of his commitment to the four Avatar sequels, which will be released in 2020, 2021, 2024 and 2025. And while Cameron is understandably circumspect about what we can expect from those movies, he did give me the odd tidbit. For example, he still has five months of Avatar 2 and 3, which were shot back to back, to go. I've only done the performance capture part of it. It's been misstated that Avatar 2 and 3 are wrapped. They're only wrapped for those principles that are in capture only. Now, that is the vast majority of the characters, and it is the vast majority of the running time of the film. But that pesky little live-action component is going to cost me five months of my life across the two movies. That live-action portion will start in April, with the Sopranos' Edie Falco cast specifically for it. Other newcomers to the franchise include Kate Winthet, reunited with Cameron for the first time since Titanic, and a group of younger actors who will play Navi children. And thanks to Cameron, we know that one of them plays Jake and Natiri's daughter. There's a three-page argument scene between Jake and Natiri, marital dispute, very, very critical to the, to the storyline. I wound up shooting it off from the point of view of the, of the eight-year-old hiding under the, hiding under the structure wow. and peeking in. As for Jake Sully, the Avatar himself, expect the character to go through the ringer over the next four films. Having gone through the experience with him on Avatar, I now knew how to write the Jake character going forward across the emotional roller coaster of 
the next four movies. And it's it's been tough on him. He's done done two pictures back to back now because we did two and three together. And, you know, he had to go to some dark places. And that's great. I mean, we both of us live for that. I mean, I think all actors live for that, really. Time will tell if Cameron's grand gamble will pay off, but only a fool would dismiss his chances. The Hollywood landscape has changed immeasurably since Avatar came out. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, Len, in its nascent stages, has become the biggest show in town. Star Wars has returned, mostly in style. The appetite for serialised storytelling is bigger than ever before, something Cameron recognises. And so he's about to come back with a story so big, it requires four films. Not a bad outcome from the toss of a coin. And that's it for our Avatar podumentary. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. It is something new and different for us. We would appreciate any feedback. You can find me on Twitter as at Chris Hewitt. And of course, Empire Magazine is at Empire Magazine. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for more podumentaries coming your way over the year. And the regular Empire podcast is up every Friday. If you don't already listen and subscribe, I would invite you to do so. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.